This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Thank you for being all here. It's a privilege, it's an honor to conduct this talk. It's just a little bit pretext to make him talk a little bit more. So uh, one of the things that uh, we've all seen in the news lately is that you become quite famous for a particular portrait that you made. But this is the end of a long, long journey, journey that started some years ago. And I would like you to take us by the hand and share that journey with us. Sure, sure. Yes, I'll be happy to. Uh, well, first of all, I just want to give thanks to everybody that's here. I'm very happy to be here. Um, I'm not very eloquent in my speech. My eloquence, I like to believe, is in my drawing. Uh, so then I'm very nervous, and as I get nervous, my Mexican accent comes out. And some people think it's sexy, some people don't. Uh, so please bear with me, no? Um, and I might go into Spanglish once in a while. Um, but yes, I'm an artist from Tijuana. I was born in Tijuana. So I wanted to start with an image of, of Tijuana, no? which is uh, the city you know, where I was born. And, uh, and kind of like this structure of the city, you know, which is, to me, it's always been a beautiful chaos. No? Um, I, I was born in Tijuana, but my father uh, had a curio shop in Rosarito Beach. I was born in 1971, so then back there, in, back then, in the 70s, there was nothing. No? It was just the Hotel Rosarito and the beach, and just the strip of road and the curio shops. No? So then this is a picture of, of my father's uh, curio shop. And uh, basically, my routine when I was growing up was just working at the curio shop and then going to school in Tijuana, no? Um, and it was a very, uh, well, first part of the day was at school. The second part was working at the curio shop, no? And, uh, and learning how to sell things to American tourists. <laughs> so then, I don't remember learning English. Uh, it was just something that just kind of, you know, just being at the store and seeing my father, you know, trying to sell. Uh, and I remember that Americans would come to the store and they hated it when they saw the store very neat. Like they wanted it to be this chaos of things. You know? uh, it was kind of like this idea of, you know, even my father told me, you know, Americans want to have the, like this little adventure. You know, they come in here and they find like this cave of things and, and then they find the object. You know? So then I remember my father would taught me to you know, tell stories. You know? You know, uh, we would have like little idols, you know, made out of, uh, out of out of clay. And well, I didn't know any history. My father didn't know any anthropology or anything like that. But we would just make up stories. You no, know? oh, this is el dios no sé qué, cuatlico, no sé, the human sacrifices and all this and whatever. And Americans, oh wow, and oh, geez, you know, and how much is this? Well, it's, you know, it's five dollars. Oh, you know. So you were pulling their legs. <laughs> well, yes, uh, but but in a way, it was just this idea of learning English, having conversation, but then telling stories, no, and making up stories. No? So we had to make up stories as we went along, you know, with things, no. Uh, so then, uh, so then that was my experience, you no, know, just being there at school in the in the morning, and then at the curio shop in the evenings, and then of course also just waiting for the American tourists to come in, and it would be long moments that would, nothing would happen. No? So then, uh, what we would do is, you know, just to pass the time, is my brother and I would put a big sheet of paper and we would start drawing, and I remember Star Wars had just come out, so then I would draw 
TIE fighters on one end, and my, father, my brother would draw X-wings on the other, and we would do these battles on paper. No? I would draw a ship, and then you draw the, the laser beam. And then at the end, you would decide, oh, did it hit or not? No? So, then, so th- we would just play for hours with these kind of narratives that we were improvising on the page as we were growing up. No? So then, in a way, kind of reflected no, the, uh, the, the improvisation and the chaos of the curio shop, but then also of the city of Tijuana, of the, of Tijuana no, where, I, where I grew up. No? And my drawings take a lot of that, the aesthetic, not only of the city, but of the taxis, of the store, of, of everything that I saw. No? And the way I, I, I work, in a way, is it's grabbing like the snapshots of people that I see, and then also how the city kind of breaks them apart. No? Like, I wasn't very conscious about just drawing individual people, but it was more about trying to capture through my drawing the entire scene. No? So then in a way, like here, what you see here in the taxis, in La Revolución, my drawings kind of also cut. Like it's the city that's cutting the figures inside this world. No? So then even the figures themselves become part of this aesthetic of the city. And then this is me working on a canvas. The way that I taught myself how to draw, I never really studied formally art. So then I uh, usually, w- when you take a drawing class, they tell you, well, you know, you do the composition first. You, know, you start from the general composition, and then you start g- going towards the detail. And the details are the last things that you put you know, in a drawing. You know? That's the academic, formal way of drawing. The way I taught myself how to draw was to draw individual details. Like I was doing in that sheet of paper when I was at the store. You draw a ship, and you draw it very well, and then you, you create those narratives. No? So it's drawing detail from detail, moving from one detail to the next. And then as I'm doing that, I'm creating a composition, no? a story. No? I remember at some point I was talking to other painters, and they were saying, oh, yeah, you have to do a lot of preparatory work. You, know, you have to have a lot of sketches because you're dealing with canvas no, and paint, and it's expensive. But the way I work is, no, I just start drawing, and it's just a finished detail, and I move on to the next. So then I never felt akin to the way a painter would work. But then I remember talking to, to poets, and they would say, well, you know, what I do is I just think of a word, then I think of another word, and then I'm stringing imagery together and improvising a narrative as I go along. And when I heard that, I said, well, that's, that's what I do, no? I'm not a visual painter. I'm more of a visual poet that uses drawing to tell a narrative. This is Tijuana Radio in China. This is a mural that I did for, for a, uh, an exhibition at Luis de Jesus in Los Angeles. And it's a way of improvising and coming up with ideas and how the environment kind of influences the work that I'm doing. No? So then here's me in my studio with a white canvas. No idea what I'm going to do. But then I just start drawing. No? And as you can tell, they're finished details, you know. When did you be- decide to become an artist? And where did you go to school? Well, um, well, I didn't go to school formally. Like, I, I, I knew that I wanted drawing in my life. But, um, but when I was in high school, there was the moment where you have to decide what you're going to do with your life, you know, and with drawing. So then I went to the counselor, and I asked, you know, uh, what could I do with drawing? And he said, oh, you can study architecture or graphic design. Architecture had math. 
So then I went to graphic design. And I started studying at, in, 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 in Tijuana. And then I had the opportunity to come to the United States and study at San Diego State University. But then uh, I hated graphic design. It wasn't what I wanted to do. It, it had no drawing, really. It was all on the computer, you know, doing Photoshop and all this. So then I remember I was tired of school. I was taking too many courses, but not, not, but not really advancing. And then at some point, I, I, I went to the counselor at San Diego State, and I asked her, you know, I have all these credits. I don't want to finish with graphic design. What can I do just to get a degree? And she said, Hugo, if you take a full semester of art history, you can get a degree in a, a, a bachelor in applied arts and sciences, which to this day I have no idea what it means. But it's a degree. And it was very important for my father for us kids to have a degree. Yeah, you know? he's already invested all this in the art. Exactly, yes. So then, uh, so then, yes, I did. I took a full semester of art history, and that, that semester changed my life. Because, yes, I had to look at art. I had to go to a museum. I had to write about art. And I remember there was an exhibition of um, Ad Nerdrum at, uh, at the, uh, uh, the, La Ho uh, the Contemporary Museum of Art in downtown. Uh, and I think it was also uh, with, uh, with Tony Orsler, an exhibition of Tony Orsler. But I remember coming in there and seeing Ad Nerdrum's work, and I realized this is what I want to do. And they were large, huge canvases, figurative canvases. And, and, I, and it made sense to me. And it was kind of like this you know, explosion in my head, like, you can do this. It's just a matter of just having you know, your drawing explode from small sheets of paper to this to this canvas. No? So then that exhibition with Ad Nerdrum at the Museum of Contemporary Art in San Diego downtown convinced me that, yes, I don't want to be a graphic designer. I want to be an artist. So I went back to my father and said, I'm going to be an artist. And my father looked at me and said, well, try it. You can go. You can fail. But you can always come back and open a curio shop, and you know, you'll be safe. No? <laughs> so then also that gave me the freedom, in a, in a sense, to try it out, no? not be afraid and just, you know, if I fail, I can always come back because in my family, a lot of my cousins were getting degrees, but they weren't practicing their degree. They were coming back to the curio shop. So I knew I always had that option. So then when I told my father that I was going to be an artist, it wasn't such a big shock to him. It was just, yes, go fail, but then come back. You know, that was his philosophy, which I'm very grateful for. So then when I finished this drawing in particular, I was just drawing faces from the border, faces from Tijuana, faces from Mexican culture. And then at that moment, uh, this was in, in uh, 2013. And then in 2014, uh, well, the 43 of Ayotzinapa happened, the missing normalistas no, from Iguala, Guerrero. No? Right. And I was very upset. No? So then I broke the mural into 43 pieces. And I decided that I wanted to exhibit this mural that represented the people of Mexico, no? its culture, its, its soul, and present it as a mural that had been broken into 43 pieces. So then the way I displayed it at Luis de Jesus Gallery is I actually kind of constructed the idea of a wall that's been cut. So then it has the mural on one side. all spread out on the floor. And it kind of looks like a bit of a cemetery almost, or a garden. It is. It does look quite a bit like a cemetery. But in the back, I decided to put 43 different types of uh, wallpaper. 
so it would bring color, it would look like a garden, a memoriam of these, of these 43 students. But then also, it kind of exponentialized the amount of people. You know? Because I remember some stupid politician mentioned, well, why are we making such a big fuss over these 43 students? Well, because these 43 students represent 500,000 you know, that are missing. You know? So then by putting these different types of uh, wallpaper on the back, 43 different types, what you're seeing is a question. No? Is it one mural broken into 43? Or are you seeing one piece from 43 murals? No? So then it exponentializes this idea of it's not just 43, you know, it's, it's, it's more. No? It's more, and they keep dugging in more bones and more bones from exactly. different graves and different things. Yes, and they keep finding more. No? So then this is an example of I'm working on something, but then something happens, and it upsets me. No? And usually I remember uh, an art history telling me how painters, artists, they always paint, they always draw, they always create two things. The things that they love and the things that they hate. It's never the media, you know, it's never it's always the things that bring out, you know, an intense feeling in you, you know. So then drawing is one of my greatest loves, you know, that's my big passion, no? But then I use the thing that I love to express the things that make me afraid, that I hate, you know, that I want to change. So then uh, once I started doing these murals, I would get invited to exhibitions. But I never had enough work. So then I knew that, well, yeah, I could always go into a space and improvise a mural. And that was always, well, you know, like the easiest way of you know, just attacking a space. You know? So then I got invited to do this residency in Chicago, uh, Mana Contemporary. And uh, they gave me the space. And, uh, and, and I decided, well, I'm going to go in there with this idea of creating a mural. But no, nobody's going to buy the mural because nobody can trust what I'm going to do. I have no preparatory sketches. So it takes a lot of, you know, I can never have anything beforehand to show, well, this is what the mural's gonna be about. It's about me just going to a space and improvising. So then it takes a lot of faith from gallerists and people to go into the space for me to go because they don't know what I'm going to create. I don't even know what I'm going to create. You know? So then I went into the space and in two weeks, I improvised the mural and I did it as a performance. You know? So I'm just painting, creating narrative. You know, What you see in the white is something where I have no idea what's going to happen. I'm only working at the moment you know, where I'm creating these details. You know? And then as a performance, well, I came in there with a shirt that says Hugo Rotulos. Now, Rotulos means sign painter. You know? So then also as a performance, I'm coming in as an actor, not as an artist. You don't know if I was hired by the artist to do this mural, you know? So then it's, it's this idea of, you know, I'm coming into a space with a costume in a way and performing a mural. This was done live, you know? so people would come in and they would watch me work, no? But then of course, like every performance, it has to have an end. So then I decided that the way I could finish this performance was by deconstructing the mural, by painting white squares. And in a way, it was about this narrative that's being improvised, but then in a very measured and pixelated way, in a, in a sense, is being deconstructed. No? Now, the way that you recorded it uh, frame by frame, was that intentional? How, what is this end product lead well, us to? 
because I knew that I was going to destroy the mural at the end or paint it, paint it over, deconstruct it. Then I knew that I wanted to have some documentation of the process of doing this. No? What is the end product in this case? Well, it was this kind of stop motion animation that happened. Okay. And then also by presenting it this way, it also harkened back to this idea of poetry. Like you can construct something, but you can't deconstruct it. Like you can destroy it. Deconstruction is a term that Borges used in poetry to isolate the words, to study the poem. So then by painting those white squares, I am deconstructing the mural by isolating those details. No? And then in the end, the narrative that made sense at the beginning, it stops making sense. But then as a viewer, you get to concentrate on those disparate details. No? So it's this deconstruction of a mural, which is something that happens in poetry. No? And something that led to other works for you. Of course. Because I would, at first, first I thought, well, this, these films would just be documentation. No? But then I kept looking at them, and I kept looking at them, and I thought, you know, these make pretty good films. <laughs> you know, like, I, I really enjoy these, no? So then I remember, um, you know, there was an opportunity for me to, uh, to participate in this um, open call. It's the Outland Bouchiever Portrait Competition at the Smithsonian Museum. And um, I wanted to do something, but portraiture has never been my, my strength. You know, I, I like creating these narratives and stories. So then, uh, so then I decided, well, you know, I'm going to try to do a portrait that's not necessarily the likeness of the person, but it's going to be the story of a person. No? So then part of my practice that I do is I, um, you know, I carry my sketchbook everywhere. No? So then I sit down you know, in Tijuana or wherever. You know, and, uh, That's the individuals. Where do you paint these? I sit down in Revolución, in front of the cathedral, in front of the cathedral. I sit down wherever I can sit down, in a coffee shop or wherever it's public. People see me you know, with my sketch. And sometimes they wonder, well, what am I? Am I a police or something? No, I'm taking <laughs> what notes. are you doing, taking notes? So then they always come forward. What are you doing? And I show them, no, you know, this is drawings. No, these are beautiful drawings. Oh, oh wow. And so then they flip through them, and, and I tell them my story. You know, I'm from Tijuana, curio shop, this, whatever, father, all this store. And then they tell me their story. You know, they want to share with me. You know? So then they tell me, oh, you know, oh, this happened to me, this happened to that. You know, oh, I'm so drunk or whatever. You know? So then they tell me their story, and I would kind of capture those stories in in, these, in my sketchbook, or at least the interpretation of it. No? And then at some point, I met Berenice Sarmiento Chavez. No? Quite a character, no? Yeah. And she was a woman that came to me as I was drawing, and, and she told me her story. You know, oh, Hugo, no? like, these horrible things have happened to me. You know, like, I crossed over into the United States, and everybody died in my group. I was the only one who survived, you know, and made it to Rancho Santa Fe, and I'm so beautiful. No? So then the the person that gave me a job, I fell in love with me, so I was struggling with you know, all these men that loved me. And then at some point, some men came into the house. They shot up the place. I, got, I, got, I was shot in the face. Is this real? And, I, and I'm listening to all this. Wow. No? And, and she's telling me, yes. And then I got deported back to Tijuana, but I'm going to go back. You know? Of course, she was telling me this story, and I was looking at her, and, you know, she wasn't beautiful. Oh, she wasn't beautiful. She, I don't think she, <laughs> she was wasn't shot. In the face. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know. So then, I knew that a lot of that story was just kind of you know made up, you no, know, in a way. But that's the way she wanted to present herself to me. So then, that's when I re realized: yes, our stories can be our portrait. You know, this is we look at ourselves in the morning in the mirror and we say, "Yes, I'm a good person." You know, we make up stories about ourselves, you know, and that's how we want to present ourselves. You no. Know? So then, I decided that for the 
for the portrait, I would present her story, not her likeness, but the story that she told me. This is who she is, and this is what she experienced. No? So in a way, it was circumventing this idea of having to do a portrait by just doing all these series of drawings and just telling her story, you know, her portrait as a story. So th this is really important in terms of all of the things that you've talked about. Talk about an artist that found himself in, in this universe that is both sides of the border, with people from both sides of the border, people that gone and come back, and had all these experiences, you being born with all your baggage from Tijuana and Rosarito, coming to the United States and trying to make it as an artist. So what do we feel about this binational bi area, it's just this border area with all these complexities that it defies speech and holding because it's all of their lives, each of them is different, dramatic. Well, I, well, even like with Berenice's story, it was always this intention of crossing the border mm -hmm. and then being deported, going back, but then coming back again. And, and just growing up in the border, it was always this idea of a floating population that is here, is in Tijuana, but it's looking always north. Like even in my father's courier shop, it was, we were looking north, you know. Even though my name, Crossway, is a very old name. Even before there was a San Diego or, or Tijuana or even a Mexico in the United States. You know? My great-great-great-grandfather, Felipe Crossway, was conscripted by Kearney to fight in the Mexican-American War on the American side because otherwise he would have been shot. So then it was this idea that even my name, Crossway, is a very old name of the area, but then this creation of a border, it kind of became, well, at least for me, like this idea of a scar that's always trying to heal with people trying to cross on both sides, you no? Know? People going north, people going south, you no? Know? But this, it keeps being slashed open, but then we keep trying to close it, no? Because it's humanity, no? We can't, you can't keep people from stories from coming from the north to the south or the south to the north. And as a crossway, well, my family is on both sides of the border. There was no border when, with my extended family, no? I have crossways in Los Angeles, San Diego, Chula Vista, Tijuana, Rosalito, Ensenada, no? And then they disappear. And then, exactly, yeah, so, then I, so then the story of Berenice was it, this idea of, of the striving you know, to always move and never really settle because even Berenice would say, well, I want to make money in the San Diego, but then I want to go back, but then I want to come back again. And it was this, this notion of this transit thinking, you know, in a way, which I found very fascinating. You know? So then I wanted to, to, to represent this through this stop-motion drawing animation, which also, with this animation, it was the first time that I was able to show to a public what happens in a drawing, you know, which is creating these details and, and creating a narrative on the page, which is what you see in this animation. You see a white page and then a narrative just unfolding, and then it's the transitions from one drawing to the next. No? The <laughs> well, um, I was trying to cheat with my portrait and it turned out that it won the competition. So, uh, and, and it won in a sense because I, was, I didn't do a direct portrait. It was about presenting portraiture's narrative. No? So I was very happy to win this award, the Album Bushiva Portrait Competition in 2019, which led to a commission 
that, that, that was uh, the price, a that, commission. That I'm gonna, uh, that was the price, no, a, a commission that I would I would get to do, no, which you guys will see a bit further on, no. So then, um, and this is the work that I do in my studio, in a sense, like in caballete, no, trabajo de caballete, no, which is exactly not the improvised work in in, in, in murals or. or animation, but this is what I do just to keep the practice of drawing going, no? and also just telling stories. No? So then the majority of my work is, is like this. No? It's, it's pencil, charcoal, and canvas. This is uh, 36 by 36 inches. It's entitled Gun. And this is another uh, uh, canvas. This is 72 inches by 72. It's pencil, charcoal, and acrylic paint and canvas. This was this one's entitled La Guerra. So it has disparate elements, no, from art history, from comic books, from the graffiti that I see in the streets, from the chaos of the mark that I see everywhere, Tijuana, no, which is that's always been kind of like my aesthetic, you know, this idea of, of, of the chaos of, of, of the city, you know, of Tijuana. And then this is a mural that uh, I've done recently. This this one's entitled um, La Potiosis de un Taco. This was my riff on uh, John Auguste Dominique Angra's painting, um, The Apotheosis of Homer. It's a grand painting, I think it's at the Louvre, which is uh, the poet Homer, you know, who wrote the Odyssey, the Iliad. He's, in this painting, he's being deified you know, as this great poet. You know? So then there's this very grandiose neoclassical painting, you know, him being risen and then there's all these poets and you know and you know other figures and musicians and you know and exactly you know so then you know this idea of deifying a person no I found very funny you know so then I decided to deify a taco so then in the center you know of this composition it all springs from a taco and a taco stand you know And then from there, this whole explosion happens. You no, know, the city of Tijuana, you no, know, its architecture, the muses, you no, know, and everything, but all kind of taking place in this. It was a way of kind of like my calling card of presenting Tijuana to the rest of the world, you no, know, which a city I love, you no. Know. So then I remember, like in, in old books, you see these front pieces, you no, know, which are very beautiful etchings, you no. Know, so then I wanted to present this front piece of Tijuana as this beautiful drawing kind of etching, no? And you always maintain the strict black and white because your basis is a virtuoso drawing, mainly, but it's very stark in the sense of the black and white, no? Yes, because, well, you know, I, I never studied formally art, so then I don't know how to paint. I don't know how to mix color. And it's still basically me playing with that sheet of paper when I was a kid, you no? Know, it was a black, a black and white surface, no? a, a black mark on a white surface, no? So then the materials are always... The most simple materials, no pencil, charcoal, you know. And because I've worked in this improvised way, you know, spending $100 on paint and not knowing what you're going to do, it's always been very, you know, scary, you know. Okay. <laughs> but, but with pencil, it's an immediate mark, you know, it's an immediate, uh, 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 you know, way of creating, you know. Totally direct. It is broken up in squares. Well, uh, my studio right now is a very small studio, so then. Um, this piece is actually uh, 10 feet by 24 feet. Uh, so then uh, I did it for an exhibition in, uh, in New York. And of course, they, they give you the dimensions. 
I, can, I don't have the space to do that. So then the work, the way I work is in a modular way. I create one piece and then I continue the drawing. So then for this drawing, I started with the taco, no? and the idea that from there this whole composition was going to flow. So your mobiles were basically modular. Yes, in a modular way, you know, because as you can see, even in Berenice Sarmiento Chavez's portrait, is that it's just one detail, and from one detail, I move to the next and to the next, and it's just creating stories, no? narratives. Okay, uh, what I want to show right now is Caravan. This is a, a new body of work that I'm working on. Um, it's sculpture. Uh, this is the first time that I'm doing sculpture. Um, uh, and it all started because um, you know I would do these stop motion drawing animations, and as a way of presenting the edition, I would do these little ceramic figurines with a USB that had the the edition of the video. And I remember that a lot of people would just fall in love with those little figurines. You now they would say, "Ooh, okay, you know, I, I don't want the video. I want the little figurine." You know? So then I decided, well, I'm going to do a series of ceramic figurines you know, and try it out. You no, know? and as I was working on this, this idea of caravan came into my mind. You no. Know? So I decided to do this installation entitled Caravan. And it's kind of playing with the term caravan, no? the politicization of that word, no? That's how it's become politicized in a, in a very to recent... To a degree. Mm -hmm. Exactly. No, the caravan just means you know, a group of people traveling to a desert. But then you know, there's a saying, you know, uh, two to three people make a conspiracy. To some politicians, two to three migrants at the border make a caravan. No? So then there's this idea of how you know, we... It's a way of dehumanizing this idea of the migrant. No, it's oh, there are waves of people, no, those waves of caravans. It's a, another way of saying horde. No, so then I decided that I was doing these little figurines that lo all looked kind of homogeneous, uh, and I would draw on them with pencil faces and portraits that all came from my sketchbook. No, like I've been working with sketchbooks like since maybe 2008. So then it's a lot of years that I've been taking faces and stories from people, and I decided I would grab faces from my sketchbook and translate those into these little ceramic figurines. No? So then um, when I started working on a, on a scene, I decided I'm going to document them, no? like take a picture. No? So then I would put them all the figures like in a caravan, and I would take pictures. And then I, you know, I was taking two pictures, three pictures, and I said, this could be a film. No? So then I decided I was going to make a stop motion film with the figures that would tell the story of one particular figure, no? Because there's a saying, you know, I think it's a Jewish saying, you know, that one, one person dies, the world entire dies, no? So yes, our experiences are, we feel it's the entire universe, our own experience. So then this word caravan that tended to dehumanize a group of people, I wanted for you through this film to see the story of one person and their struggle, no? And convincing other people to, to move forward, no? So then this is the film Caravan.
Hugo, uh, this, this work presents a lot of complicated problems and raises a lot of questions. Is it one piece is just a stop motion um, because the piece is outside, it's in addition, and the complexities that you raise because it's just, it's the work in, the, in clay, the figures, the drawings, the, the whole thing put together, the music. Uh, tell us more about this work because it's really, it's the, and the, the social context, the whole thing comes to a different level completely. Well, well, like I mentioned earlier, it was this idea of caravan, the word playing with the word caravan. No? But then, of course, as I was working to this, you know, this was, you know, back in, in May, in June, you know, the story of the 53 migrants that were found dead in a trailer truck in exactly. San Antonio, Texas, happened. No? So then, and I already had these figures in a box. No? That was the setting that I was working on. So then it hit me really strongly, you know, like, here I am, no playing with these images of migrants in a box, no? So then I, I need to get them out of there, no? Like, I decided that it was going to be a film about them getting away. At the beginning of the film, you see that the one, the one character has this dream of falling, no? In poverty or wh wherever he comes from, no? But then he has this dream that he needs to get out of here, no? And, and especially when I realized that what had happened, no? In San Antonio. See. And then that I had these images inside a box, these figures, I did, they can't live in this box, this can't be their world, I have to get them out. So then I decided that it was going to be a story about them breaking out of the box, only to find another box, <laughs> you know, another, the border, no? Yeah. Uh, which is the, the eternal struggle, no? That's always going to happen, no? Like, we escape from one place, but we need to strive forward, forward. That's life, no? We're never going to make it. It's always going to be this constant going and going and going, you know? which is also the whole theme, I think, of, of, of migration. No? Like it's this instinct that we all have, a natural instinct to move forward, no? to be moving. No? When we stop, we die. You know? It's this constant movement no? that we need. No? So then that's what I wanted to show through this film, no? this idea of caravan taking that element of the word, the politicization of it, and then placing it in this, in this wider you know, context. Film context no? of, of the animation. And then the installation, no? which is uh, an installation where it's a group of five which is this idea of a family, because mm -hmm. usually caravans are families either related or not, but they're together in this journey. And then with them is the, the, also the image of, of death, which, you know, coming from a Mexican tradition, death is family, you know? We celebrate them you know, on the Day of the Dead, you know? So then it's this idea that it's always present as a remembrance of our legacy, you know? Nuestros antepasados, no? Our, our ancestors, you know? So then we carry that with us, you know? as we go forward, as we're looking for a better life. And now that you mention it, we've seen that uh, skull in, in previous works of yours. I always try to stay away from the skull because it was very Mexican. And also, as a Mexican artist, you know, when I was living in New York, they would say, oh, you're a Mexican artist, you know, where's the color, where's the music, where's the Frida Kahlo, where's the this? <laughs> so then I, I tried to stay away from that. But then in a way, I couldn't. You know, it was also images that are from Tijuana, images where I grew up. I grew up in a curio shop, which was just, I was bathed in this notion of Mexican folklore, no? So then in a way, I decided, well, yeah, black and white works because it's presenting Mexican folklorism in a new way, you know? Without the color, without the music, without the tourism in a way, but presenting Tijuana as a black and white, which usually black and white has this connotation also of, in a way, 
the stark contrasts no, that happen at the border. And then also, some people think of black and white as truth. When they look at black and white photography, they think of history. You know? So then by presenting my imagery in black and white, it's also be presenting my stories, the stories I'm making up, but presenting them as history. You know, the way I would sell things to American tourists. Oh, yes, this really happened. But it's my stories no, that I'm making up and trying to present them to a public. You know? And then in a way, it's my experiences and my history here you know, in Tijuana. You know? So you win this contest, and what was the price in the context? Yeah, this is images of, of, of the installation of the figurines, no? of the figures with a stand, no? which isolate the imagery into these, this family. No? And then also with the video comes these little small figurines with a USB MP4 in the back. No? Okay. And the edition. No? How many of the edition? Uh, right now, I'm working towards 24. But I want to continue this series because this idea of a caravan is something that's endless. So uh, my idea is I would like to continue throughout my, you know, creating these little figurines and kind of expanding this idea you know, of, of a never-ending you know, caravan. Now, you, uh, we were saying you won the contest, and the prize was? To do a portrait, no? And they told me, well, this is the Smithsonian Museum, he said, you know, we deal with American history. <laughs> so then we're going to propose characters for you. If you like them, you can do them. You can propose people for us. And, you know, it, it, they told me it takes three years for them to decide what's going to happen. No? Okay, so then I would propose people. Oh, he's too Mexican. Oh, he's not enough this, not enough that. And then at some point, uh, I got a call from Taina Caragol, the curator from the National Portrait Gallery. And she mentioned, Hugo, would you like to do the portrait of Dr. Anthony Fauci? I fell off my chair you know, when I heard that. And I was, yes, yes. Because I realized that to me, to do the portrait of Dr. Anthony Fauci in the moment that we're living with the pandemic and everything, I realized it's not just my opportunity to tell the portrait of a man, but also to tell the story of this moment, very particular that we're living. No? And then also, I, I realized, you know, I, I, well, I got an opportunity you know, to, to speak with Dr. Fauci through Zoom, our first meeting. You know? And we talked, and he's very humble. He's very, you know, like, oh, ooh, how are you doing? Oh, good, and whatever. And we, we were talking, and a big stroke of fear just ran through my whole body because I realized this man does not want a portrait. Like, he's too humble. He was like, you know, the way he was talking to me, the way he was like this idea of, well, I'm just one member of a group of doctors, a group of scientists that were dealing with these situations. And I realized this is... This man does not want a portrait. And he's not going to want like, this huge portrait of him with a, you know, with a sword and fighting a virus. No, Forget it. No, and then, and then also he was telling me, oh, the National Portrait Gallery is such an honor and all this. I used to visit this museum when I was, you know, when I was young. And, this, and, you know, and he was telling me all this. And I realized, you know, my God, you know, this is a man who doesn't want a portrait. And I'm an artist who doesn't do portraits either. No, Good. <laughs> so we're going to have to negotiate. No? how I can do this. So I remember after that Zoom meeting, I just like, you know, couldn't sleep and I was thinking and thinking and thinking and, I, and I, that's a really, well, you know, I'm going to do the same trick I did before and I'm going to try to circumvent the portrait and not do the likeness or not necessarily do the likeness of Dr. Fauci but tell his story, you know, tell a narrative, you know, through stop motion drawing animation. So then I knew it wasn't going to be a painting, it wasn't going to be a drawing, it was going to be a video, it was going to be an animation, you no. Know? So then, okay, so then I had another meeting with Dr. Fauci, and I told him, you know, Anthony, we're going to do this 
I'm going to do this stop motion drawing animation. And he went, what is it? Well, and I showed him what I'd done, the portrait of Berenice and all this. And I told him this whole idea. You know, I don't do portraits. They tell stories. And he loved the idea. So then he told me his story, you know, 50 years worth. And I talked to the curator, Taina, and she said, Ugo, if you're going to do a video, it can't be more than five minutes. People can barely look at something for 18 seconds. No? <laughs> so then a video, five minutes, that's the limit. No? So then there was the other nightmare, no? the other stroke of fear. You know? they just hit. I have to tell 50 years of story in five minutes. No? So, so, then, uh, so then just talking with, with Anthony, you know, with Tony, you know, I, I was able to visit his house. You know, so, you know, the museum paid for me to go, and, and I went into his house, and it was a very modest house in a suburb of Washington. Came in, there were guards protecting him, but he came in the house. We sat at the kitchen table, he had his weights on the side, and he told me his story, and I told him what I wanted to do, and I said, it's only gonna be five minutes, so then what do you think is you know, the, the, the structure of your life? In a way, what, what are you most proud of? No? And he told me, well, he said, there's basically two major events in my career, no? the HIV pandemic, epidemic, and COVID. So I said, okay, that's gonna be the film. It's just gonna be these two chapters, no? That kind of reflect on each other. They're kind of parallel to each other, no? So then he was telling me, he told me the whole story about the HIV epidemic and how he was dealing with it and how, you know, it, it was a moment where even the administration was afraid to say the word AIDS, no? And also how the gay community suffered so much because they were ostracized, you know, and they were, and, People did not want to talk about this disease. And there was this whole community that was fighting and screaming to let everyone know this is happening. You know? So then um, he had this opportunity to have this meeting with the ACT UP movement in, in Greenwich Village, which he says, it was the first time we were able to converse. I went to converse with the gay community you know, in, in, uh, in, in Greenwich Village. You know? And they told me what they wanted. You know? and, and, and so then it was this idea that there were protests that were happening, but there were protests of people that were fighting for their lives. No? In contrast to what was happening with the COVID-19 epidemic, which kind of the opposite thing happened. No? It's a disease that's out there, and the government has the medications, has the resources, is helping out, but it was a public that did not want the vaccine, that were protesting for their right, for their freedom to die. So then in a sense, it was those two things that happened that Fauci was like, this is such an incredible contrast in 50 years of his career, you know? So then I decided, well, that's gonna be the portrait, though. So uh, I'm gonna show you the film. It's five minutes. Um, it has the music of Marilu Salinas, she's here. She's the, uh, the composer of the music. And it was edited by my partner, Teresa Magario. She, she couldn't be here. Um, but this is six months of work. A lot of headaches, a lot of nightmares, but finally got it done.
listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.